those rich people always flying off somewhere. <laughs> hey everyone, welcome to the Vegan Vanguard. It's Mexi, and today we have Greg from In the Roots podcast on the show to talk about the IMF and the World Bank and this idea of economic refugees. So, hello, Greg. Welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to have you. So before we start, I'm going to shout out the patrons this week. Uh, so thank you so much to our new patrons, Wouter, I'm not sure how to pronounce that exactly, uh, James Pena, and Diego Casanova, who very generously increased their pledge. And thank you also to Chris O'Connor for a very generous one-time donation via PayPal. And of course, if you would like to support the continuation of this show, you can become a monthly patron at patreon.com slash veganvanguard, or you can make a one-time donation via PayPal on our website, which is veganvanguardpodcast.com. Or you can rate or review this podcast on iTunes to help increase our reach. I just saw that on the Canadian version of the podcasts on iTunes, we have some new uh, ratings and reviews, which I was very pleased to see. We have like most of our reviews are from on the American version. So on the Canadian one, I was very pleased to see that. Um, but yeah, that really helps and just really goes a long way to keep the show going. So also before we get into the uh, questions with Greg, I am going to, as usual, read out some hopeful headlines for the future submitted by the listeners. And uh, as always, I'd like to encourage everyone to send in your headlines. Greg has not heard these headlines, so I'm going to <laughs> read some out and we shall react. Okay. These ones are from Michurin9801. So first one is sanitation now accessible for 99% of the population. Pretty good. That'd be a good plus. <laughs> yes, very important. <laughs> um, number two is Great Pacific Garbage Patch Cleaned. Also important. Some lofty thinking though right there. I mean, that's a, that's a tough job. It is, but it's kind of also the least that we need to be doing right now. You know, like if we that can't even true. if we can't even clean up some garbage out of the ocean, <laughs> then like how are we gonna how are we gonna fix anything else? Basically, right? Yeah. And we are we already have the technology. I've seen so many you know online videos about these machines that can go out and basically like suck in all of the plastic without somehow without sucking in the fish or other life forms. So we can do this. We're just not doing it <laughs> well that's kind of most of the climate stuff most of it yeah pretty much um all right the numbers are in carbon emissions are finally net negative that Ooh. would be amazing that'd be a great article to wake up to i was just thinking that if like imagine waking up and reading in the newspaper carbon emissions are net negative <laughs> That'd be like the best cup of coffee in my life. <laughs> uh, absolutely. That would really like assuage all of, all of my fears about the next decade to come pretty much. Although I feel like at this point, at this point, the only way that th it could be net negative is if we engaged in a lot of like geoengineering, um, like carbon capture and storage and that kind of thing, which I feel like is going to be necessary. I mean, the IPCC report has basically said that if we want to keep warming below 1.5 degrees Celsius, which is kind of a pipe dream at this point, I think, but if we want to do that, then it's going to have to involve a lot of carbon capture and storage. And uh, <sighs> So we have to terraform Earth is what you're saying. Yeah. And I know that some people have, have told me, you know, well, I don't think we should be so alarmist about things like that, like technologies like that. And uh, I, I just feel like there's so much that can go wrong <laughs> with that. Yeah. Um, like if it was ever to, if all of that carbon being stored underground was ever to get out, that would have, you know, tremendous impacts on our climate in a really rapid way. And I just, I just, <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, that's a pretty terrifying terrorist target too. If you want to think about that, I mean, then it's all got like loose and, yeah that's, that's pretty bad but i mean i don't know what kind of terrorists would do that because then it's like well now the whole earth is dead including you and your country or whatever right so that's true anyway 
I would love to see carbon emissions net negative in my lifetime. Um, <laughs> and uh, they said also something they haven't fleshed this out, I guess, but the end of military action across the world. Also something I'm hoping for. That'd also be a great cup of coffee in the morning. Great cup of coffee. Have you heard of Mike Gravel? I have not. Oh, is that oh. that uh, senator? I think? Yes. Yeah, <laughs> yes. I have then. Yeah. So there's the senator, Mike Gravel, if you haven't heard, that is running for president. And he's really trying right now to, well, a bunch of teens basically are running his social media platform, and they're really trying to make it so that he can get onto the debate stage with everyone else, because he is completely anti-war, and his whole purpose of running is to to push Bernie and Tulsi and Warren uh, to the left on foreign policy, because we all know that on foreign policy that's where all the progressives are fairly weak and so i really i really hope he gets there his social yeah. media is blowing up it's it's really hilarious the memes that he has now <laughs> <laughs> did you mention it i think i follow him on twitter yeah because i think like aoc and a couple of people like ilan omar have retweeted stuff from him oh really wow that's really I think funny. so okay yeah, well, he's at 30K. If you're in the United States, so I can't donate because I'm in Canada, um, but he needs 65,000 donations to make it onto the debate stage. And I think he has 38,000 right now. And you can donate only like $1. But if he gets up to 65,000, then he'll be on that debate stage and he will be hopefully pushing for the end of military action across <laughs> the world. <laughs> so something something to think about. Anyway, so yes, again, thank you to Mishirin for these headlines. And please, everyone else, send in your hopeful headlines to any of our social media places. Um, I guess that would be my Twitter or our Facebook, or you can email it to veganvanguardpodcast at gmail.com. So, all right, let us get into the questions. So, I asked Greg to come on the show today. I found out about Greg after listening to his interview on Rev Left Radio, which was really amazing, talking about the IMF and the World Bank. And I have just made a video about Faith Goldie, who is a virulent white nationalist in, in Toronto, in Canada. And a lot of the comments that I was getting on that video were predictably very anti-immigrant, anti-refugee. I mean, we're in a very xenophobic time at the moment. And I feel like, you know, there's always been a, a great deal of xenophobia in the West, but it seems to be ramping up a lot lately. And there's really just this narrative that the West is the best and that people are coming here because their countries are just so backwards and they just can't figure it out. And they're just bad at capitalism, basically. And uh, they should just stay there and work it work it out themselves, right? There's just this really, <laughs> there's just this really <laughs> strong narrative about you know how much freedom and prosperity we have, and that's why people are coming. And I thought it would just be really great to have Greg on and uh, you know inject a, a smidge of nuance and historical accuracy into this discussion and talk about the ways in which our institutions, our financial institutions, are creating these situations and, you know, talk a bit about the idea of economic refugees. So the first question would be, Greg, would you like to introduce yourself to the listeners and tell people where they can find your work? Uh, and also, how do you identify politically and what led you to identify as such? For sure. Well, my name is Greg. Um, I am a co-host of In The Roots podcast. Um, you can find my stuff on SoundCloud, on iTunes, um, on Google, and you can find me on Twitter at underscore the real Greg underscore. It's the most Ooh. epic uh, Twitter handle. <laughs> um, and I think I'm search banned, so you guys might have to do some digging. Might might happen. Um, but politically, I identify probably closest to an anarcho-communist. Mm -hmm. um, I've kind of fluctuated in my political views over time, but this is kind of where I've stuck the longest. I do a lot of readings. So sometimes if I'm le reading Lenin or Mao, I might get a little more uh, into that direction of things. But usually I'm pretty obsessed with the, the Zapatistas in mm. Mexico, and that's kind of the model I like to look to. Mm -hmm. So yeah. 
Yeah, great model. Okay, so as I said, uh, I wanted to talk with Greg about this prevalent narrative right now that people, you know, this whole refugee crisis is happening just because other countries are crap and our countries are great. So I wanted to talk about the making of the quote unquote third world or the global south. I recognize I'm going to be using these terms throughout the podcast, but I recognize that they are problematic in their own right. But this is kind of the language that we have to use. I'm not sure what other uh, other terms to use. Um, so yes, we want to talk about the, the making of the quote unquote global south and the mechanisms through which countries are perpetually impoverished. So Greg, could you give a brief history of the IMF and the World Bank and the functions that they are meant to serve in the world? For sure. Uh, so we're going to go kind of back to the beginning. Uh, when the IMF and World Bank were both founded, and that's at the Bretton Woods Conference in 1944. And that was to sort of regulate the international monetary and financial systems following uh, the Second World War. This was attended by representatives from all of the allied nations, but the conference was really dominated by the United States. Uh, this ultimate goal was to essentially create a system of open markets and high unemployment uh, high corporate investment and insurance so that loans from corporations in the United States government would be given to nations like uh, France or West Germany in order to rebuild the economy following the destruction of World War II. Mm -hmm. So the International Monetary Fund, World Bank, they're both uh, international financial institutions or global financial institutions as usually I refer to them. Uh, they both fit under this umbrella of being a financial institution, so something like a bank but they're administered uh, internationally. Mm. So they've gone beyond these kind of confines of national laws, and they interact with all these nation states as their own kind of player in the international arena. So these two organizations, the World Bank and IMF, are uh, very much related and pretty symbiotic in their own nature. They require each other's existence to function to the extent that they achieve their political purposes. So they operate alongside another uh alongside another organization called the World Trade Organization. Mm. And that was originally founded in 1948. Um, and it became the WTO that we know today in 1995. The purpose of the WTO and the world economy is to settle trade disputes and act as a body of negotiation for trade between uh, nation states to open access to as much trade as possible. Um this will make more sense as to why it's used by IMF a bit later when we discuss uh, structural adjustment. Mm -hmm. uh, so the structure of the World Bank and IMF um, is pretty interesting. So the World Bank is actually a combination of two financial institutions. Uh, it's the International Bank for Reconstruction and Development and the International Development Association. So these two organizations are branches of the World Bank. But they function, in effect, as one organization under the umbrella of the World Bank. Mm -hmm. uh, the function purpose of the World Bank is that it acts as a loan bank for countries uh, that use it for development in a physical or material sense. So it can be used for political development projects, physical infrastructure, uh, corporate placement, uh, investment incentives, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but there's major criticisms of the behavior, which, uh, again, I'll talk about more in detail with structural adjustment. But kind of broadly speaking, the World Bank can lend at its discretion and implement conditions that it imposes for lending. Mm -hmm. And those are certain political or developmental conditions. And due to it being mostly influenced in the United States government and the European Union and from certain corporations, the World Bank generally skews these conditions in the favor uh, of these influencers, both financially and politically. Mm -hmm. The World Bank operates as it was designed during the Bretton Woods Conference to sort of uh, have a parliamentary electoral system within it. And it has representatives from nations around the world, but the United States holds a veto power within the system. So you kind of know where that goes already <laughs> just from that. Yeah. Um, and the World Bank's huge, but the bulk of its power comes from the power of the IMF. So the IMF shares a lot of these same responsibilities as the World Bank. But it kind of, it takes the reins, we could say, I guess is a good way to put it. Uh, mm -hmm. the, the IMF states that its goal is to promote trade, financial stability, and a reduction in poverty, <laughs> and to increase macroeconomic growth. The first step in the IMF, IMF process is that they use this uh, surveillance system, and it's a, 
evaluation system that evaluates the uh, political and economic situation of nations mm-hmm. to decide whether they're eligible for certain loans and how they affect the world economy, creates a bunch of fancy statistical charts. It's mm-hmm. a lot of confusing stuff, honestly. <laughs> um, the IMF also offers loans in multiple forms, and this is kind of where it gets a little sketchy. Uh, there are different specific and complicated loan types, but we can boil it down to kind of three broad types of loan. Mm -hmm. Uh, The first is a concessional loan, um, which is a normal loan, has very typical interest rates, and it's given to like the United States. Mm. Uh, There's concessional loans, which seem to be pretty generous initially. Um, The interest rates don't go up until later, but then they go up really steeply. Mm-hmm. at a later date and that's given to developing nations in the global south of course um, and then there are crisis loans that are given with all sorts of stipulations that's when we see structural adjustment it's like a targeted concessional loan mm-hmm. so with the imf loans they all come with these conditions to some extent mm-hmm. i mean it's not just large amounts of interest it includes structural adjustment conditions for getting the IMF funding that might be necessary for the time. And if a government doesn't meet these ideologically charged conditions that are set, they just don't get the funds. Mm -hmm. So the big difference between the IMF and the World Bank is that the IMF grants loans based upon international payment issues. Uh, Governments can't pay their debts or they're trying to get a massive uh, uh, deficit cut. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the World Bank provides loans for a very specific project. So if you want to build a bridge or something along those lines, mm-hmm. they do definitely play off of each other. And in many cases, they just negotiate as one unit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So <laughs> there's so much there. I think uh, maybe I'll, I'll give some of my thoughts later, but um, <laughs> let's dive into some of these conditions that they attach. So what what economic ideology do these institutions push and why? Yeah, so there's a couple frameworks and ideological views that we could really look at um, for these organizations and what they embody. But -hmm. if we want to peg a political ideology, these really fit under the umbrella of neoliberalism, and they really Mm -hmm. embrace these core notions of neoliberalism. Mm -hmm. And just for people who might not know what I'm necessarily talking about, to define neoliberalism, it's in a social or political sense, it's the enforcement of capitalist class society through the terminology and ideological grounds of classical liberalism. Mm -hmm. So if we want a more socioeconomic definition, it's the enactment of free market laissez-faire capitalism, um, which shows in policies of open trade, austerity, incentives for corporations, deregulation, uh, privatization, etc. And if we want a more critical analysis beyond just saying, oh, it's Milton Friedman and neoliberalism. <laughs> it's really looking at how this manifests itself as an ideology around the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, and it really is just a simply uh, a new form of colonialism, which is, I mean, neocolonialism. It's a pretty, mm-hmm. pretty creative term. Um, it was first coined by Sartre, and it was used by Kwame Nkrumah in mass right away. Um, the major idea of what it is is that once the old colonial powers lost this vast territory that they had under their direct control, they mm-hmm. obviously wanted to keep that control. Um, and I guess to some extent they never lost it. But mm-hmm. this imperialism is a function of capitalism, which requires imperialistic notions to operate. So these powerful nations require the underdevelopment of poor nations to operate so they can extract resources from the global south and use it to better the global north. It's a classic example of class conflict, but applied in kind of a global sense. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, where the West occupies the position of the bourgeoisie and the global South occupies this position of the proletariat. And we can see with the U.S. dominance in economies throughout the globe, easily noted with South America or Africa in particular, this is sort of embodied in the sociological theory called dependency theory. Mm -hmm. And dependency theory is in a simplistic way, is kind of the requirement of underdevelopment of outer countries in order to maintain the development of the core nations. So I kind of like to imagine a circle. And all of the resources in the world are in this circle. And then you just draw a little smaller circle in it. And the overall circle is every place on the planet, whereas that small circle in the middle is just the Western global nations. Mm -hmm. So if you want to think of something like gravity or something along those lines, all of these resources will just kind of flow to that center they're pulled down into it. Mm-hmm. So the center takes from this periphery. Um, it's not 
not only is it the global north that's dependent on the resources of the global south, but then it exerts its force onto the global south, requiring it to depend on it. Um, and some of the tools it uses include these financial institutions that we are really talking about now, which are manifestations of global capitalism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really great visual um, and like analogy to use. Um, of course, I mean, in, in late stage capitalism, there is this transnational capitalist class. So even within these countries, there are uh, there are capitalist classes that do benefit from uh the exploitation of their own nation, I suppose. Um, (laughs) But I, I, that is a a great visual of how, uh, you know, the, the wealth and the resources from around the world are kind of sucked into this (laughs) colonial core or imperial core, I should say. Um, So you've talked a bit about this, but could you just explain a bit more explicitly what the term structural adjustment means and how these institutions and programs have contributed to the making of the global South, particularly in these post-colonial states? Yeah. So structural adjustment policies are the kind of epitome of what these IMF conditions are that that are forced on governments and uh, what they're coerced into. So structural adjustment policies follow the logic of what is known as the Washington Consensus, which is kind of popularized by Noam Chomsky. Mm-hmm. Uh, this includes a variety of policies, and that's aimed at bolstering an economy through massive programs aimed at privatization and austerity, very specifically. Um, specifics include uh, creating competitive exchange rates for goods, uh, which is lowering prices on a nation's exports, essentially. Uh, mm-hmm. and increasing prices on imports mm-hmm. at the same time. Good move. Um, <laughs> it, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, who thought that was going to be helpful? Anyway. Yeah. Continue. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, massive privatization of state-run services uh, and enterprises. Deregulation of mm-hmm. all major private enterprise, but not for local enterprise, just for international enterprise. Mm-hmm. Uh, legal security of the rights of private property. So that's basically making a police force designed to protect private property. Wow, it sounds like Wonderful. the United States. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's large austerity programs. So cutting social services like healthcare, schools, and infrastructure, you know, things that generally benefit people in general. Mm-hmm. Um, and the elimination of deficit spending, which plays into austerity still. Mm-hmm. Um, so these structural adjustment policies were designed as a way to help in the short term. The theory was to save money, to pay debts, and to build an infrastructure that would promote a long-term monetary benefit. Uh, the loans provided by the IMF and World Bank throughout the 80s, 90s, and 2000s were meant to be repaid within two to four years, and harsh financial penalties would be placed on nations by the IMF and the <laughs> World Bank if they failed to repay in that time frame. Which to happens to be most of the time. Yeah, two to four years. And when you see the size of these loans, it's ridiculous. It's unbelievable. So yeah, I have some big examples if you want to get into those. Of I, I definitely do. Policies. All right, let's do it. <laughs> so I'm going to start in Africa and kind of move to South America. Mm-hmm. So in Africa, the I have two countries that I think really highlight this. And the first one I'm going to talk about is Zambia. Mm-hmm. So in Zambia, structural adjustment policies had a pretty devastating impact from the get-go. Uh, for some background before the IMF comes in, in 1974, Zambia enters into this negative growth rate of GDP every single year. Mm-hmm. And this is due to the drop in prices um, in the copper industry, which they heavily relied on. And this reliance was created by its usefulness at the time during colonization. So Zambia was a copper exporting country to the British and the French empires. Mm-hmm. Um, so in order to prevent an economic collapse, the government turns straight to the IMF. Uh, so very early on in this period of structural adjustment, in 1978, the IMF coerces Zambia basically into a 20% devaluation of the national currency mm-hmm. and the immediate implementation of austerity programs. Mm-hmm. And this was kind of to promote foreign investment and as copper, Zambia's biggest export saw very little change uh, in the global and more specifically European demand in the coming decade. Mm-hmm. But as these prices lowered, the copper industry was just kind of decimated because the demand is not changing, but mm-hmm. your prices are going down. Mm-hmm. So between 1974 and 1984, the GDP either grew minimally or not at all. And even while Zambia was following all of the stipulations for structural adjustment from the IMF, um, it didn't show any 
good effect for growth from mm-hmm. the structural adjustment, except for it increased the loan debt that was owed <laughs> to the IMF, uh, which by 1990 exceeded $880 million. Hmm. Um, so in Zambia, the programs had terrible effects. Um, the austerity measures introduced cuts to much-needed social spending from the government. The massive devaluation of national uh, currency led to a near doubling of oil and gasoline prices within Zambia, Ugh. which only hurts low-income earners and trade mm-hmm. <laughs> for the whole yeah. nation. Um, and these measures of austerity and the lack of government money that was being put into anything um, also led to lack of subsidies that was given to farmers. So by 1989, the food prices started to go up. And so the price mm-hmm. of corn, which is one of the most consumed foods in Zambia, uh, nearly tripled. Mm-hmm. Um, <sighs> just unbelievable. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah, just this idea of, yeah, let's just lower the prices of this. I mean, I understand the idea of supply and demand, but yeah, let's lower the price <laughs> of the only thing that you're exporting and then that will be helpful to you, <laughs> you know? It's like, <laughs> and also, I mean, I, I guess copper's not a great example, but maybe you can speak to this a bit, that in a lot of nations, they were encouraging countries to grow a lot of the same cash crops, right? So they were just flooding the market yeah. with the same, with with all of these uh, commodities. But when you flood the market, then the price goes down even further. So then these countries are just in competition with one another in a race to the bottom. Exactly. And then all of the profits are being shipped out to the global north the mm-hmm. whole time. Yeah. So they don't get to keep anything that they're even producing. No. Um, so kind of another example from that region, Ghana, um, uh, the structural adjustment actually had an initial positive impact. Um, mm-hmm. It was starting to look like it was doing what it was supposed to. Um, but then, I mean, like every other story I'm about to tell, <laughs> pretty depressing. Mm-hmm. Um so the World Bank and IMF uh, helped provide loans to pay back Ghana's debt right away and help control inflation, assuming that Ghana follows the IMF recommended structural adjustment. So early on, this meant the initial de- devaluation of currency, lowering mm-hmm. exchange rates, tariffs, exports, the whole typical structural adjustment line. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was mainly to cut spending to prevert, to prevent further debt. And it was to promote investment from corporations abroad in former government programs. So beginning in uh, kind of 1981, the devaluing of the currency, lowering of tariffs, etc., cetera, um, stabilized the market for Ghana and the gold, cocoa, and timber industries. And all of these industries co- contributed to an economic growth rate of nearly 4% a year between 1984 and 1991. Mm-hmm. But even though the economy was growing, there was a ton of economic development for private industries. This didn't translate to the rest of the economy or society in any meaningful way. <laughs> surprise, uh, surprise. <laughs> yeah. All these austerity programs enforced on the population from the structural adjustment and the lack of social spending, uh, it, it led to a loss in the income and job access. And this obviously had a massive impact in reducing the quality of healthcare, education, you name it. Um, mm-hmm. Since austerity programs historically, and in this case, target middle lower income families, mm-hmm. this exacerbates wealth inequality. And as a result of this widening inequality, we can look at the wage gap between the rich and the poor, which increased of a ratio from two to one in 1983 to six to one in mm. 1989. That's only six years. And the flow of wealth coming from trade cuts either went to the bourgeoisie in Ghana or more commonly to Europe and North America. Mm-hmm. just absolutely devastating (laughs) and i mean you think that like it's hard not to think that this was deliberate right it's like i know that they are following a particular economic ideology but especially when you start to do this to one country two countries three countries you're getting all the same results why have they held on to this model right obviously they're benefiting but because i think that the imf and world bank kind of think that they're doing good (laughs) <laughs> and I think that the organizations that kind of use them know that they're not. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that they're just these tools of the global establishment to mm-hmm. enforce whatever. Mm-hmm. And maybe the heads of the IMF know what they're doing. But I doubt that the lower level people in the IMF really know what's going on mm-hmm. with all of this. Maybe yeah. they do. but Probably not, I guess. But I, I'm yeah. not sure. I mean, you you do have uh, well. I know. Actually, never mind. The Confessions of an Economic Hitman. He, I don't think he was working directly for the World Bank or the IMF. But yeah. 
I mean, I think you do have people who know what's happening, but geez, just hearing these stories is just. Uh. Well, do you want another depressing story? I do. I do. Let's keep going. <laughs> so this one's kind of my longest one. Um, I've done the most research on this country, and this is Jamaica. Mm. Um, so I hope it's not too lengthy, but uh, I'm going to give a little bit of background because Jamaica is kind of an interesting example. So Jamaica had been in a debt crisis after they gained independence from the UK in the 60s. Mm -hmm. um, so when Jamaica gained this, I, I guess, independence, um, its economy was highly focused on cash crops like coffee, bananas, sugar, and cocoa. I mean, it's the Caribbean. Mm -hmm. So um, this economy was very specifically focused in this way because that's what the UK needed from it during the colonial period, getting other goods from other places like, say, a beer or Ghana. Mm -hmm. um, in 1973, the world oil market crashes and imports become way more expensive. And because Jamaica was an exporting nation of cash crops, the Jamaican economy also crashed because mm -hmm. they weren't getting a lot of the imports that they needed for us cheap. So during the 1980s, debt payments um, and interest on rates of already existing debt rose so that by 1987, Jamaica was paying almost 35% interest on debts payments uh, and, and exports. Wow. So since 1987, uh, this debt interest didn't really ever fall below 20% just due to the IMF interference. Mm -hmm. uh, since the 70s, Jamaica has paid more than $19 billion towards loans uh, and loan debt overseas. Wow. And it's only been lent about $18 billion. So in 2015, the Jamaican government said it owed $7.8 billion in loan debt. So if you do the math for 20 years, the government would have a budget surplus every single year, if not for the amounts of debt interest that they have. Mm -hmm. And we can kind of look to structural adjustment for why this happened. Mm -hmm. So in the case of Jamaica in the 90s, um, and Jamaica is a better example because it is more recent, mm -hmm. the IMF calls for massive cuts in spending and austerity. So the government could direct that money to this interest on loans, you know, the whole typical structural adjustment line. Mm -hmm. And this being coerced into farming subsidy losses is really bad for Jamaica because it is an agricultural society. Mm -hmm. So in order to receive the loans from the IMF and World Bank, the government had to follow these policies and they had to accept because they needed the loans so they could afford imports on things that they didn't have the infrastructure for following the colonial period, mm -hmm. like heavy industry materials. So... Throughout the 90s, the United States and the EU-based businesses kind of replaced Jamaican businesses. And these corporations were able to sell these products for cheaper than Jamaican products. Mm. Um, this is also the case in foreign markets. So Chiquita, Chiquita Bananas, can produce bananas in Latin American countries for half the price as Jamaica can per pound. Mm. So this leads wealthy nations to trade more with other corporations like Chiquita within those countries because it's cheaper contributing to this kind of cyclical nature of commodity trade with these single uh, monolithic corporations. Mm -hmm. The corporations from developed nations that reside in developing nations, such as the case in Jamaica, uh, can pay significantly less to workers in these nations, mm -hmm. um, which is why they don't produce in the U.S. So thank you, NAFTA. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah <right. laughs> and this isn't limited to food production. Um, it it, it kind of goes into food selling, too. So... A good example in Jamaica would be McDonald's. McDonald's was able to go into Jamaica, sue another corporation that was called McDonald's, mm -hmm. um, and then offer a lower price for food with food sourced from random places around the world. And it also kind of sketchily sold food that was like years expired. In some cases, it was found to be 10 years expired. What? It's pretty disgusting. Yeah, it was frozen. So, Ugh. but you know. <laughs> um, and this ran local farmers out of businesses, out of business because- Mm -hmm. They couldn't keep up with the low prices. And same with local restaurants. Nobody could compete with it. And I guess serving expired food is going to lead to some health issues. I guess. Um, so many of these corporations came on a policy that the IMF enforced um, as a loan stipulation. And this established what's called free trade zones. Mm -hmm. um, and these, in effect, allow factories to dodge local controls. So the IMF uses this as a tactic as part of structural adjustment, which is in coordination with other international financial institutions. So this is a commercial and industrial zone that is not technically a part of the country it resides in, in this case, Jamaica. Hmm. So they section off plots of land in these developing countries for this and remove their government's control. 
and it's usually by water so that goods can be shipped out without the government interfering. Uh, so they kind of do what they want, pay people what they want. They don't have to adhere to labor laws that are uh, national in Jamaica because it's not technically part of Jamaica. And they don't have to adhere to international labor laws because they can say, well, I'm in Jamaica, not an international zone. Wow. It's this really bizarre halfway point. But the government can't tax it. Um, the government can't enforce anything. So the argumentative line that you should get from the IMF and World Bank is when a nation allows large corporations to come into a nation with no taxation or penalties, they'll invest in the nation and provide jobs for people. Mm-hmm. Um, even though all of the money is being taken out, shipped to the United States, and the population is working in low-pay sweatshops. Um, that is sinister. <laughs> Very. That is sinister. They know <clears throat> what they're doing. They have to know what they're doing. I... I would either hope so or hope not, depending on, I guess, the situation. <laughs> I mean, they're either no really way. dumb or really evil. I'm leaning towards evil. I mean, how can you really think that setting up something like that is going to increase prosperity and like they should be grateful for these jobs and everything? I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But. I, the World Bank even knows about this example, I guess, because if you look into their own growth statistics for Jamaica, mm-hmm. uh, between the years 1980 and 2010, Jamaica had seen an average and under 1% growth rate per year in uh, GDP, gross domestic product, mm-hmm. and kind of the accepted international capitalist community growth rate is supposed to be 3% growth mm-hmm. uh, as a minimum. Mm-hmm. So what this means is that the economy... Uh, until now, has remained stagnant since 1990. Mm-hmm. Um, and since the onset of the global financial crisis of 2008, Jamaica has seen a rise in tariffs and more austerity because mm-hmm. now the capitalists can't even give them loans. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's no places to trade to because nobody can afford to buy anything. Um, and this is also due to cheap goods coming from the U.S. and other South American nations. Mm-hmm. And that's resulted in an increase in unemployment. So from 2008 to 2013, the unemployment rose 6%. Um, over 20% of the entire government expenditure in Jamaica today goes off to paying off interest on debt and loans. Wow. Not even the original debt, just the interest. Wow. So due to excessive amounts spent on debt, we can see what the government doesn't have money to afford because they can't pay for social programs or infrastructure. Food prices in Jamaica have also risen by 15% because their farming industry has been gutted. Mm-hmm. So rages remain stagnant in most every profession and regressive in any other profession. Yikes. And if we look recently again, the poverty rate since the global financial crash has gone from 10% to almost 18%. Wow. And the rise in poverty has also correlated with the rise in homelessness, obviously, uh, contributing to lack of access to water, electricity, Mm-hmm. Uh, health issues, um, the 20% drop in children completing primary school, mm-hmm. and the doubling of the infant mortality rate. Wow. So, yeah, really happy. But, but neoliberal capitalism is the best system we have, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Much prosperity. And I mean, even the unemployment levels, I mean, maybe you can speak to this. The, it's not really a great. Uh, measure of how a society is doing, right? I mean, like Trump is now being like, well, the the unemployment level is the lowest it's ever been or whatever, you know, like I am lowering the unemployment uh, level, but that doesn't really take into account, you know, the quality of the jobs, right? The flexibilization yeah. of labor or are these people working minimum wage as minimum wage enough to survive? No, it's not, right? So Yeah, well, and the point with a lot of these countries and the unemployment rate is, most of the jobs aren't going to be that great in developing nations. Mm-hmm. And a job in general means you have at least some income. Whereas mm-hmm. if you don't, there's nothing. Like there's not yeah. a lot of unemployment benefits in these countries. There's not mm-hmm. um, really any government programs that are useful in a meaningful way. It's kind of like the US actually. actually yeah. You know, it's almost exactly like the US. Yeah. Except that the US <laughs> chose that. Whereas these countries are forced not to invest in any kind of social safety. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah wow and also it's uh you know for a lot of countries and correct me if i'm wrong 
But going into these countries and, you know, encouraging the growth of cash crops or whatnot, um, a lot of times it's taking people who were perhaps cash poor, but at least food secure in that, you know, they could grow their own food or there, there was like a community, it was accessible, like food grown locally was more accessible to people. Um, and then through all these programs, making them not only cash poor, but also food insecure, because now you're not growing your own food. And now um, local food can't compete with, as you said, McDonald's and all these things, right? So yeah. You're, so it's you're just removing food security from people and then saying, well, don't worry, we'll give you these jobs. But the jobs obviously are not enough to provide yeah. what you need to live. So, Well, and yeah, the food security is a little different depending on the country because mm -hmm. some weren't really food secure in the first place mm. because of colonization. Right. But I mean, if you look at countries like Burkina Faso or Chile, uh, Salvador Allende and uh, Thomas Sankara, Mm -hmm. The governments at that point were able to provide for pretty much everyone in the countries at at least a base assistance level. Mm -hmm. And then once they were out of office, it just that that was gone. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Well, thank you for those examples. I mean, I think yeah. it should be clear to everyone by now that countries were not just they're not just poor because they're just backwards. They just can't get it together. I mean, this is a long history of first colonization and then these horribly sinister economic policies imposed on these states and uh, you know, them being forced to prioritize debt repayment over anything that would actually help people to thrive and, and increase their well-being. So we've kind of zoomed in on, on different examples here, just zooming out a bit and looking at the big picture. Uh, what would you say the role of debt is in the global economy? Yeah, well, the role of debt in the global economy is extremely important for it to function mm -hmm. um, as it stands today. That is a catalyst that these financial institutions and developed nations use as an excuse to interfere with the sovereignty of not as powerful as developed nations mm -hmm. and to kind of reassert this imperialistic dominance that they hold. Mm -hmm. um, and it's highlighted by kind of examples that I already gave, but also in a ton of other instances, um, we can look to oil company interference in Ecuador, Cameroon, Chad, mm -hmm. where they're just exploiting and destroying not only the people, but the land in those countries. Mm -hmm. um, if you want to look at Venezuela, I mean, Oof, yeah. Venezuela almost got invaded because they rejected the IMF. That's essentially why there's an economic war against them right now. Mm -hmm. uh, there's plenty of other examples. You can look to pretty much any uh, U.S. interference around the globe since World War II, and it's pretty much to kind of reassert. Uh, capitalist dominance mm -hmm. um, we can look at up and coming global powers actually and uh, corporations that are trying to put a foot through this door in a way too and good examples from that are largely coming from corporations within the people's republic of china mm -hmm. um, and in particular this affects east africa mm -hmm. um, and this kind of comes to mind because we talk about chinese investment and the chinese aren't necessarily trying to have this capitalistic dominance they might be but we don't know for sure. Mm -hmm. But it's definitely a geopolitical play to achieve more power on the global scale. Mm -hmm. And it's definitely colonial. Mm -hmm. So the United States, China, these they use these uh, organizations like the IMF. They use debt. They use all of these functions to control nations without using military engagement. Rather than murdering them with physical weapons, they are murdering them with money mm -hmm. and murdering them with uh, food scarcity. Mm -hmm. And they're using this to exacerbate debt and make money for the big corporations of the world and keep the Global South uh, firmly under their boot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that was very well said. As well, I mean, I'm just kind of spitballing here, but just thinking about like late stage capitalism and the fact that all of the wealth has really concentrated into so few hands at this point, right? There's, you know, you oh, can yeah. count on your hands how many people own the majority of the wealth. Um, so debt, to my mind, is also important. I guess this idea of like credit um, is important to keep the movement and the accumulation of capital going like otherwise it it would stagnate if all the wealth is at the top and it's not being reinvested or like capital is not continuing to move through uh you know the cycle um 
I don't know where it's going from here. I feel like the entire global economy at this point is just being held together by debt. <laughs> you know, absolutely. And, I mean, that's how it's designed. Right. You want it to be that way. So now that we've talked about, I guess, the initial consequences of structural adjustment historically, I wanted to move on to how these institutions continue to contribute to the reproduction, the continual reproduction of the quote unquote third world or the global south and global hierarchy. Could you explain the concept of aid in reverse and how debt is being weaponized to make wealth continue to flow south to north to this day? Yeah. So I think the examples of structural adjustment that I talked about with Zambia, Ghana, Jamaica, um, we can kind of see how the money and resources and other forms of capital flow out of those countries and into the hands of the global elite. Mm -hmm. If we understand aid in reverse, and uh, it kind of helps highlight this. So the industrialized nations do give aid to underdeveloped nations, Mm -hmm. but nearly always this comes with stipulations, structural adjustment, geopolitical goals, you name it. Uh, all this aid uh, that is given to the global south is absolutely nothing in comparison to the wealth that flows from the global south to the global north. Mm-hmm. So as a uh, there's a Guardian article that I think kind of highlights this um, and talks about it in pretty decent terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and it said that the GDP of the U.S. is about sixteen trillion dollars, and that's nearly the exact same amount of money that these nations uh, have given to the U.S. since 1980. So the wealth that's flown <laughs> to the U.S. since 1980 from all these developing countries is the U.S. GDP currently. Wow. So if you think about what companies and CEOs from companies have made and pocketed on top of that figure, that's mm-hmm. a really terrifying figure. Mm-hmm. Um, so the same article points out that we take in nearly 24 times the amount from these countries compared to what we give them in aid. Wow. So these countries are funding the exploits of the global north and the global south is exploited, and the global north uses those resources that they give them to further their own exploitation. Mm -hmm. And this is the core to what aid in reverse, I think, really is. Mm -hmm. And if we think about this debt that's being manufactured, it's just an excuse for the IMF, the World Trade Organization, the World Bank, to coerce them into policies that exacerbate this debt and allow these corporations to come in and enact really strange slave labor zones Mm -hmm. to take wealth out And I know I sound like a broken record, but this is a continuing cycle that won't be solved with charity. It's solved with action from within the imperial core, sovereignty and solidarity movements like in Burkina Faso in the 1980s and the Zapatistas today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very good points. Maybe we can uh, get a bit into what resistance looks like uh, later at the end. But clearly, all of this rhetoric about refugees and immigrants etc just coming because because we're so great i mean i don't see i mean i do see how people can miss this broader story but i mean this this needs to be talked about so much more than it is in the mainstream that this is why this these things are happening right like this is why different yeah. countries are suffering um the people there are suffering and it's not an accident but we know why this isn't talked about in the mainstream we do because <laughs> <laughs> they're part of those same corporations that right do this honestly that's true yeah i mean they control our media for sure um So, uh, on another note, the World Bank claims that it is actually lifting millions of people out of poverty. And (laughs) if you watch the Jordan Peterson versus Zizek debate, you heard that repeated as well. And I was actually uh, at a salon where people were discussing the debate and people were really, really standing behind that fact that capitalism has lifted millions and millions of people out of poverty. (laughs) And so therefore, it's the best system that we have. It might not be the best, but it's the best that we have. However, economist Jason Hickel, and I believe even the former head of the World Bank, Joseph Stiglitz, because I read his book, um, Globalization is Discontents, and he was citing figures about how poverty was growing um, up through the 90s. But uh, anyway, uh, you know, certain economists are uh, disputing that fact. So what can you say about the stats that are presented on poverty alleviation and this narrative that global capitalism has improved the lives of 
most people on this planet. So, yeah, I've read into a lot of World Bank and IMF stats, and they're pretty uh, vague mm-hmm. at best. Anything that they produce out that's made by them is intentionally misleading. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you want to actually see their real stats, you read stuff by economists or uh, different scholarly journals. Mm-hmm. But the idea that the World Bank alleviates poly- uh, poverty is rather bizarre, Um like first we have to define the parameters of what they consider poverty mm-hmm. which on their uh website and in any paper that they uh put out the world bank rather strangely calculates extreme poverty very simply and very bluntly at just being uh 1.9 US dollars a day without mm-hmm. looking into the standards of living without looking at any of the material conditions that these people live under mm-hmm. um so if we're looking at the indicators of quality of life that these institutions can maybe cite a couple examples where they did improve some income levels or poverty or some qualities of life. Mm-hmm. But in the grand scheme of the global system, kind of like what I highlighted with my examples, it doesn't have any significant positive impact <laughs> on the grand scheme of things because it hurts so much more than it helps. Mm-hmm. So if we look at the region where the World Bank and other financial institutions have been arguably the most active, which is sub-Saharan Africa, we can see that's also the most impoverished and exploited region in the world. Mm -hmm. So what really helps these nations is social programs and Mm self-sufficiency. So to kind of compare this, I'd like to look at a couple of great examples that many leftists love to talk about in other contexts, and that would be Chile under Salvador Allende and Burkina Faso under Thomas Ankara. Mm -hmm. So there's plenty of other examples people can look up but these are pretty easy ones to uh, look into, and there's a lot of writing on it. But Chile, under Allende's administration, uh, immediately nationalizes copper. They seized all bank assets, uh, nationalized all of the national resources. Agriculture was uh, redistributed to local farmers. Unions were supported. All of the money was in public ownership and was used for a variety of things. So we can see that uh, unemployment drops, but these are better jobs that they're filling in places now, too. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a near 9% GDP growth during the time of this, which mm-hmm. is huge. Um, uh, the reduction of malnutrition by 17% and an 89% increase in university enrollment, which you don't get mm-hmm. unless you have money to go to university or unless it's being provided in a good way. Mm-hmm. So that's among plenty of other factors. In Burkina Faso, Thomas Sankara pursued massive infrastructure projects, uh, self-sufficiency drives, nationalization of uh, resources, Mm -hmm. collectivization of agriculture, and social programs that were largely aimed at helping uh, actually women. Mm -hmm. So this resulted in the near tripling of wheat output in order to feed a starving nation. Uh, 2.5 million people got vaccines for diseases that they wouldn't have had otherwise, including Mm -hmm. AIDS, which was a crisis in every other African country during the 1980s. But in both of these cases, the drive for self-sufficiency, nationalization, and the hostility towards the IMF and World Bank and the World Trade Organization led to an economic war that gets waged against these countries by the rest of the West, Mm -hmm. um, which is what we can really highlight in Venezuela today. Mm -hmm. Um, So in Burkina Faso and Chile, we can see what happens when the socialist movements are destroyed and the imperialist powers come back. In both cases, it was an assassination followed by political violence, genocide, and the immediate destruction of the economy and the people who live there. Mm. So while the World Bank and the IMF can say that they help things, they contribute to this uh, absolute slaughter of people in industrializing nations Mm -hmm. and do nothing but aid the West Mm -hmm. in its conquest for imperial power. So to say that they alleviate poverty but destroy movements that actually alleviate poverty Mm -hmm. um, is hypocritical at best. Yeah, I would say so. (laughs) Yeah, this is actually a a funny – one of the funny tweets that Mike Ravel – well, the people that run his – his social media put out they said how many latin american socialists do we have to kill before you realize that socialism doesn't work (laughs) (laughs) right (laughs) i was like damn microbell that's great um but no it's absolutely true that yeah looking at venezuela today i mean it's just it's just ludicrous anyone who tries to buck this system anyone who tries to focus on self-sufficiency or alternative modes of being to the washington consensus is not only 
you know, economically targeted, but militarily so also. It's just, it's not allowed to flourish whatsoever. Um, and I always found this this argument from, you know, capitalist apologists to be really strange that, you know, oh, well, GDP has risen, as if GDP is a good measure <laughs> of well-being around the world. GDP has risen, and so therefore, this is the best system. And it's like, well, even if you look at, quote unquote, communist countries or socialist experiments and whatnot, their standards of living have also increased. So how is that even anything of an argument but the bourgeoisie got more money so it's good <laughs> right <laughs> that's all it is it's just but it's like but everyone else also had their standards of living improved so how can you say that it's capitalism especially as if capitalism is producing so much poverty and destroying like actively destroying the well-being of people in so many countries that are just not in the global north because uh, enforcing a police state to um push people into poverty and to uh, have full domination over society is really what freedom is oh. actually oh i see um, sorry to everyone who <laughs> doesn't get that my sarcasm is very sarcastic i do this all the time i'm sorry <laughs> no i mean definitely um so okay bringing this back to the the refugee crisis and anti-immigrant sentiment um could you explain why it is that people are coming here or being forced to come and perhaps talk a bit about this idea of economic refugees? And I'm not sure if you have any grounded examples, but also what responsibility do Western countries hold to people fleeing conditions in their own countries as we are benefactors of World Bank activity globally? Yeah. So I think for me, the easiest examples to look at as being a citizen of the U.S. is uh, what's coming from Mexico and South America across that southern United States border. Mm -hmm. And then living specifically in Minnesota, um, we have a lot of refugees from Southeast Asia from the Vietnam War. Mm. And we have a lot of refugees from Somalia. Mm. Um, like my political representative, uh, Ilhan Omar, mm. uh, is a Somalian-American. So amazing. Um, <laughs> just like props to her <laughs> yeah it's my district too so oh, yeah you know i get the, i get the best of the u.s government um Sweet. but so this is because of multiple issues so it's drug wars coups wars yeah you name it but it's also obviously this massive wealth exodus from the nations that they are from mm -hmm. to the united states mm -hmm. so here in the imperial core we have taken their wealth and we exploit their labor within our own country even so we accept these refugees to do these just awful jobs here. Mm -hmm. um, and they're not a able to escape this cataclysmic uh, force that the global north has forced upon them. They will always be some cheap labor source from the global south because the institutions in the global north view them the same way that they view resources from the global south, mm -hmm. something to be owned by the global north. Mm -hmm. And this is horrible, but we do have... Here in the West, we have a duty to accept them into our countries as best as we can, despite the exploitation here, as it is our nations and our corporations that are destroying their livelihood and extorting them for cheap labor and resources. Mm -hmm. But it's also up to us to help remove these forces. Yeah. So the Imperial Corps won't be stopped or taken out by sovereignty movements in the Global South. It's not feasible. They don't have enough resources or power to do it. Mm -hmm. We have to work from within. And as citizens of the US, Canada, the United Kingdom, the rest of Europe, etc., uh, we have to challenge the elite with whatever means we have by eliminating the exploitation here. Mm -hmm. uh, we can uh, truly aid those abroad. Mm -hmm. So the US has vast resources. We can redirect that to be something positive. It's our job here to change that. Otherwise, the cycle will continue and get worse, especially with uh, the looming ecological collapse on our doorstep as well. Mm -hmm. That's very well said. Not only do we, <laughs> should we be accepting refugees and yeah, people, people act as if we don't have the resources to do that. I mean, that's absolutely ridiculous and also ignores the fact that as you said, the refugees that we do accept are economically exploited then as cheap labor sources here. And they're often not given proper, um, you know, access to healthcare and childcare, et cetera, right? Like the programs yeah. leave a lot to be desired. 
But I, yeah, first and foremost, we have to stop the U.S. war machine. <laughs> we have to stop the <laughs> the imperial war machine. And it's not just the U.S. It's yeah, it's the the you know Western quote unquote developed countries. Just if we do not stop imperialism, I mean, you brought up like uh, coups and drug wars, and even that is related to uh, the imperialist war machine. Right. Yeah. I mean, like all the coups that and all the violence that is sending a lot of people from Central America to the United States right now is based around this economic imperialism. Well, and this is really kind of the core ideology of even capitalism. The mm-hmm. whole thing is to mm-hmm. exploit other classes of people mm-hmm. to gain material profit and to have ownership over something. Mm-hmm. And when you have a system that's based in that way, even if you elect like a social democrat like Bernie Sanders, somebody along those lines mm-hmm. who just wants capitalism with more rainbows and unicorns, mm-hmm. um, it, it'll still be exploitative to the global south. Maybe we won't be assassinating their leaders, but we'll still be destroying them economically. Mm-hmm. And it, it simply voting won't fix it. Mm-hmm. Simply caring about people won't fix it. We have to actually engage in direct action. Mm-hmm. We have to engage in education to the point where the populace understands what's actually going on in this world because people don't because they've been miseducated their whole life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's 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 so much to to untangle, but I mean, we have to do it. Like you're right, there's absolutely yeah. there's no possible way in a system based on continual growth in a system based on funneling all of the the money continually up the hierarchy into fewer and fewer hands i mean there's there's just no way to get around this kind of exploitation and uh, marginalization of the majority of the world and its resources so uh that's a pretty depressing <laughs> depressing note to to leave off on um you had mentioned the WTO. Did you want to say anything more about how the WTO uh, relates to all of this? They have a more simple role. I mean, the WTO is more just about the trade relations in general. Mm-hmm. So they're kind of, with regards to how this all flows, they really are just kind of a, a tool even of the IMF, which is a tool of the rest of the global elite. So mm-hmm. the WTO does do quite a bit, but they don't have the same coercive capacity that the other Mm. um, organizations have. And they operate with and along them because, you know, they pair really well when you open trade and allow corporations to exploit people. And Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. I I feel like the WTO has, uh, you know, relevance in the global North as well. Like with these uh, like global trade deals, like the TPP, et cetera, that um, stipulates that if, like Canada, for example, were to put into place any any laws or anything that would hinder the profits of a company, they could sue Canada. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's stipulated in the laws that are passed or the agreements that are passed. Mm. But the WTO kind of enforces all of that. Yeah. And they kind of make sure it... Uh, they're, they're like the plumbers of the trade system, I guess. Mm. They just kind of... Make sure everything runs smoothly, I guess. Just kind of make sure no one's doing anything for the people or the planet that might hinder the the profits of corporations internationally. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> yeah. Great. Um, so yeah, I guess those are those are all my questions. I really just wanted to to hammer home to people uh, how this intricate global system works, how it is just continuously funneling wealth and resources from the global south to south, sorry, to the global north. Um, and yeah, just this idea of anti-immigrant, anti-refugee sentiment within this broader picture within historical context is just nonsensical. It's just really nonsensical, right? And for people who are right wing, I've been talking to some some more people like that recently, for since like some of my videos. Um for people who do actually like who are xenophobic and they do actually not want to see refugees or immigrants coming here, then why would you not want to focus on the root cause of that problem. Like if you were actually thinking, I want to stop refugees coming, I want to stop immigrants coming, then the only logical thing to do would be to fight U.S. imperialism. No? I mean, yeah, but... (laughs) 
Yeah. I, I mean, like, obviously, it's hard to explain that to them, I guess. It is, I guess, but it's just, you know, it's like, well, why do you think that they are coming? Like, if you just look at the reasons why people are being forced out of their home, like why these coups are happening, why people can't make their livelihoods around the world, and even increasingly in in the U.S., it's like, this is, this is why. It, does, it yeah. doesn't, I mean, obviously, that's not a reason to oppose U.S. imperialism, but even on their terms, right, it's just... Anyway, I hope that that is clear. If you're, if you're but on if the right, but if there's more domination, then they can't move places because there's so much domination from our, our superior country. Mm. Yeah, I guess. I don't know. Maybe or, that's the line they would tell. That's my guess, but yeah, I don't know. Well, I'm sure, like the you know the fash, I you know I've heard they're like, well, yeah, that, that's fine. Like the rest of the world can just uh, suffer the consequences of climate change, and <laughs> we'll just live on somehow. <laughs> not well. It's it's not well thought out, but yeah, there's not a lot of good theory behind that. No, not not like I was expecting there to be. <laughs> <but>. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> All right. Well, anyway, I I hope that we've hammered these points home. Um, do you have any anything to add before we leave off? Yeah. If you if you guys want to learn more about this, please look it up. There's great examples in Argentina. Mm. There's examples. I mean, really in every developing country in the world. But Ecuador today is a very uh, real thing that's happening with mm. the oil problem that's going on there, mm-hmm. and what's happening to the indigenous people there mm. is really truly. Uh, awful mm. to read about mm-hmm. and it's unfolding as we very speak or at the moment we we speak mm-hmm. words are hard guys um <laughs> so definitely look that up if you want to be more depressed and uh you want to hear more sad things mm-hmm. follow me on twitter or uh email us or listen to my podcast which is less sad mm-hmm. um it's just uh, a lot more anger and sarcasm for me. So perfect, yeah, definitely. definitely Everyone yeah. should check out In the Roots podcast. I'm actually going to be a guest on that podcast soon. <laughs> so yeah, check it out. Uh, connect with Greg on Twitter or email or whatnot. And yeah, just thank you so much, Greg, for coming on the show. This is a really great discussion. Yeah, thank you for having me. I love to make uh, kind of optimistic shows more depressing. Yes. That's really. <laughs> my goal <laughs> yeah i don't think i make anything uplifting ever <laughs> that's not true we started with some positive headlines <laughs> then we just yeah it took it to a really real dark place um but anyway yeah thank you again for coming on yeah thank you Cheers.